Good morning. My name's Tony. I'm the lead pastor here at Gateway. Glad you joined us on a beautiful, beautiful weekend. Um, the worship team was excited this morning. We went out front and a balloon landed in our front yard here. And uh, we stood there and watched, said, oh, that's cool. And then came back in and practiced some more. And it was awesome. Just a great weekend, great day. Glad you're here. It's a great day to be here because we're starting a brand new series today called Fully You, Unlocking Your New Identity in Christ. Much of the material for this six-week series was uh, based upon a book uh, by a guy who wrote it's called Fully You by Joel Malm. If you're interested in getting that book and following along, it's called Fully You, Unlocking the Power of All You Really Are, of Who You Really Are. And uh, we're going to use a lot of material from that, and as well as biblical truth and, and uh, scripture for us today. Uh, so here's the big idea. I'm just going to come right out front, and the big idea of this series is this. That in Christ, in Jesus, in a relationship with Him, we're a new creation. We're new. The old is gone, the new is here. He gives us a do-over. He gives us a restart. In Christ, we are a new creation. But, and that's a big word, right? Three letters, but a big word. But shaking off the old habits, shaking off the old mindsets that we had when we lived in sin before Christ can be hard. And I just acknowledge that. It's a struggle sometimes. And sometimes it's not even a struggle to to overcome sin, but just patterns of behavior. Things in our life, in our mind that is difficult to overcome. When we're saved, and if you're new to the church and you're wondering, what does it mean to be saved? Many people think being saved is there's a judgment coming, sin will be dealt with, there's a penalty to sin, and people are going to go to heaven or hell. And so when we say we were saved, that was the moment in time, the day that we gave our hearts to Jesus, and we were born again, new, and saved from the penalty of sin. We use words like justified. We use words like forgiven. We use words like regenerated. I know that's an interesting word, but that's that newness. It's like our spirit is dead, but We're regenerated. When the Spirit of God comes into our hearts because we put our faith in Jesus, we are regenerated. Our spirits are brought back to life, and now we can have this live, ongoing, fresh, new relationship with God. It's instantaneous. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus, you are saved. You're justified in that You were guilty, God's the judge, the jury, and the executioner. You broke his law, you broke the law of God, you're guilty, he's the judge, and he looks down and says, sinner, guilty. But when you put your life, your heart in Jesus' hands, and you trust in him for his blood sacrifice, you are forgiven, you're justified. God looks at you as though and says, because you trust in my plan of salvation, Jesus, you're justified. You are, it's as though you never did it. He doesn't look at you and say guilty anymore. He looks at you and says forgiven. And so there's this transaction that happens. We are saved from the penalty that comes from sin. The guilt of sin. But salvation is so much more than that. It's more than just a ticket to heaven. It's more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's more than just a transaction, this moment instantaneous when I'm born again, I'm justified, I'm regenerated. All that's awesome and it's necessary, but then begins the process of salvation. And here's why. Yes, you were guilty of sin. Yes, we broke the law of God. Yes, Jesus forgives and justifies. But let me just say it this way. 
humanity is messed up because of sin. And there's a process that God takes us through to fix that. The goal of God is not to just get you to heaven. The goal of God is to renew the image of God in you. That's the goal. That you would reflect who He is and who He meant for you to be. John Wesley was an 18th century theologian. He is the father of Methodism. He founded Methodism. He was actually an Anglican priest. Went on revival tours. The great awakenings happened under his leadership and his ministry in England and here in America in the 1700s. Much of our tribal doctrine, our church, falls under Wesley. We, I am a Wesleyan. I love Wesley. I read Wesley. I've studied Wesley. I've read his sermons and his theology. And Wesley wrote and preached and taught that God's salvation in Jesus was for the penalty of sin. In other words, it was transactional. A transaction happens when you are born again. That God says, guilty, okay, now you're not guilty. There's this transaction. This judicial salvation, if you will. There's a side of salvation that's judicial. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Judicial salvation. It means the judge says you're guilty. Jesus says you're forgiven. You put your faith in Jesus. God forgives you. And the judge says you're free to go. You're not guilty anymore. That's transactional. That's judicial. But Wesley also preached and taught and wrote about the plague of sin. The effects of sin. Wesley in his writings and in his sermons, he draws this line of distinction between instantaneously restoring our relationship with God, which is when we were born again, and the new birth as gradual, and get this, he talks about a gradual, here's the word, therapeutic salvation. The atonement of God, the salvation of God is therapeutic. You're like, I thought it just got me to heaven. I thought it just made things okay between me and God. Yes, but the gospel also cures us, heals us, transforms us. The plague and the effects and the mindset and the habits and the the parts of our life that are affected by our sin, God also has provided a way to cure that, to heal that. It's called sanctification. It is the renewing of myself, my person, back to the image of God. So Wesley had this quote. By salvation, I mean, and he wrote about this all the time. You know, what do you mean by salvation? Wesley says, well, by salvation, I mean, not barely according to the vulgar notion. Remember, he's 1700, so he talks weird. Deliverance from hell. He says, not that I mean salvation is just deliverance from hell. A lot of people think that's all it is. They come down and they give their hearts to Jesus and then they go and live as though, well, I don't, I'm not going to hell anymore. Wesley's like, no. It's not about hell and heaven, salvation, but he says, but a present deliverance from sin. He's saying a deliverance from sin now. It's not like you're saved and then you go and live in sin and then you someday go to heaven. He's saying no. Wesley says salvation is about a present deliverance. Here. He says it's a restoration of the soul to its primitive health. It's original purity, a recovery, if you will, of the divine nature. The renewal of our souls after the image of God in righteousness and true holiness, in justice, in mercy and truth. Wesley's saying, don't use sin as an excuse to keep sinning. Salvation is a process and a moment that God begins in your life where He begins to renew you in the image of God. To heal you. The plague of sin. 
There's this book called Responsible Grace written by a guy named Randy Maddox. He takes all of Wesley's writings and he talks about the old Wesley and the new and the young Wesley and he takes all of it and he puts it all together and he says this about Wesley's view of salvation. He says, if the critical problem if sin is not just guilt, but the spiritual debilitation and affliction of the human person. Hear what he's saying. Wesley says this. The problem of sin is, yeah, you're guilty. You do things wrong. But the real problem is this debilitating affliction that sin has caused in our life. Then, he says, salvation must involve more than pardon. Salvation has to be more than just your forgiveness. Salvation has to be more than just you being born again. Salvation must be more than just you getting your foot out of hell and both feet into heaven. He's saying salvation is more than that. It must also be about healing. And that is what this series is about. It's about healing. It's about overcoming the effects of sin in my life. It's overcoming the sinfulness of other people that has affected me. Every one of us here has been affected by someone else's sin. Whether you were abused, lied to, cheated, whatever. It affects us. We live in a sinful world. And what this series is all about is overcoming the effects of sin in my life and being healed. Healed from the shame that sin leaves behind. Jesus is not just a ticket master to heaven. He's also a great physician that can heal our hearts. And that's what we're going to talk about. So let me lighten it up. You're like, wow, Pastor, man, that's a, you're supposed to be funny in your introduction. You know, that, wow, okay. Well, let me lighten it up a little bit with a funny story. When I was in the fourth grade, I know that's funny in itself, right? Trying to picture me in the fourth grade. But when I was in the fourth grade, I had this huge crush on a girl. Yeah, I'm going to tell this story. Um, I had a huge crush on a girl named, and I won't use her real name, but we'll call her Julie Smith. I don't know. Julie Smith. I thought about calling her, you know, Julie Jones or something like that. But Julie Smith. The crush was big. I mean, I was in the fourth grade. It was my first big crush. Um, I had no idea who this girl was, what she liked, what she didn't like. I didn't, I mean, I knew very little about her. All I knew is I, I liked her. But I was a chicken. I, I was, I'm introverted, and so I was shy, and I didn't, I wasn't good talking to the, to the ladies, you know. I wasn't suave or anything like that. And I didn't know how to talk to her. I didn't know how to have a conversation even with her. Um, I know that sounds strange, but I was chicken. But I was always trying to get close to her. You know what I'm talking about, right? When we would line up, I would try to like push my way into the line so I'm standing in, like, in front of her, behind her. When we'd go to the lunchroom, I'd look in the lunchroom where she's sitting, and I would not sit too you know, sitting right next to her, that's just obvious. I wouldn't do that. But I would try to get close in the vicinity where I could hear her voice or she could hear mine and I could act like I'm cool, you know, or, and maybe she would notice me. I tried to put myself in the vicinity of where she might possibly notice me maybe in the lunchroom or on the playground or when we went to auditorium and I try to sit somewhere near I was crazy about this girl sorry honey it was a fourth grade not important however I just could not get up the courage to talk to this lady this young girl so one day I thought we're sitting in class I thought man you got to man up you just got to get enough courage and you got to do this so I did you know what a man should do. And I went right up to her and I said, hey, look, babe. No, I did not do that. I did not do that. I wrote a letter. I'm sitting there in class, fourth grade, Charlestown, Indiana. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Charlestown, Indiana. Mr. Creech is my fourth grade teacher. Mr. Creech. 
you know. I'm not kidding, that was his name. And he looked like a creech. This guy was huge. I mean, I was in the fourth grade, but he was this big guy with this big long beard, and, and he, you know, he just looked like a Mr. Creech. And he was really a nice guy, but you know, I came up with this plan, this strategy, and I wrote this letter, and no joke, it literally said this Hi Julie, this is Tony. Would you be my girlfriend? Yes or no? It was the fourth grade. That's kind of how I proposed to my wife. I folded the note quietly. Now, keep in mind, there was a rule in Mr. Creech's room, no passing notes. And he was strict about this. I mean, this guy was scary, man. I mean, he was a Creech. But uh, I folded it up, and then I raised my hand, and I said, Hey, Mr. Creech, can I go to the restroom? He said yes, and so I got up, and I made sure I went over to the row that she was in. And as I walked by, I kind of tossed the note on her desk. And then I went out the door. I don't even know if I used the bathroom. I don't even know if I had to use the bathroom. It was an excuse. It was a ruse to get myself up so that I could drop this note. Why the timing? The timing was, you know, I have no idea. Um, but that was my strategy, raising my hand, going to the bathroom. You know, I don't even know if I went. I, I, I waited a little bit, but not too long, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's too embarrassing if I'm go to the bathroom and I'm gone for too long. Um, you know, I, I'm gone for a little bit. I come back in the door. I walk in the door and something's off. Something's strange. Everyone's staring at me. A couple of them are giggling. A couple of them kind of look down. And I'm thinking, did I leave my zipper open? You know, did I miss the toilet? You know, is it on my leg? I don't know. I'm thinking to myself, what's wrong? Over my seat, I sit down. My hands are sweating. My heart's pounding. I waited a few minutes. And Mr. Creech said, welcome back, Mr. Baker. While you were gone, we did some extracurricular reading. Would you like to know what that is? And I looked around, and everybody's kind of like not looking at me, and they're like looking her down and giggling. And he reaches over on his desk and pulls out my note. Mr. Creech said, How was your trip to the bathroom? Okay. Would you like to know what we were reading? He said. So he pulls out the letter and he begins to read my note to the whole class. Guilty. I knew it. I was busted. I was embarrassed. I was guilty. I knew the rules. I knew how strict he was. I thought I could slide one in. He was strict about passing notes, but I thought he didn't see it. I don't know. My thought, my mind even went to maybe she handed it to him. Maybe he didn't see it, you know. She read it and said and gave it to him just to be mean. I have no idea. I don't think I ever talked to that girl again. Um, I was thoroughly embarrassed, but I was guilty. I did something wrong. I broke the rules of the class, and I was guilty. But something else happened that day. Something more personal, something more deep in my heart. He took the guilt and went a little further, and he shamed me. He shamed me. He could have took me aside, and he could have said, Mr. Baker, we don't do this, and privately chastised me. But he chose to shame me in front of the whole class. Shame is more than just doing something wrong. Because that day, I started to have a sense in my heart and in my mind, and I started to believe a negative voice that not only did I do something wrong, but there was something wrong with me. And that is shame. We all have similar moments like that, don't we? I know it's the fourth grade. It was 40 years ago. I know it's a long time ago, but that's one moment in my life. We all have moments in our life like that. 
the time you found out a family secret that even to this day you try to keep a secret. That time you were rejected by someone that you cared about or you thought cared about you. That failure that comes when you think, I'm not enough. I don't add up. I'm less than. That, that, that situation ruined my, you know, my relationships for years to come, right? I was scared. I was frightened. I didn't trust anymore. I was shamed. Shame is this constant reminder that we're not enough. Shame is this constant voice in our heads that says, I'm less than everyone else. It leads to all kinds of insecurities. It leads to all kinds of defense mechanisms, which are behaviors that are sinful that we're going to talk more about. But here's the truth. That God designed us with very specific needs that only God can meet. And the fact that we are sinful and live in a sinful world means that we have to deal with shame and guilt and things around us. Sin messed the whole thing up. Genesis chapter 1, that's where I'm at. Chapter 1, verse 27. Listen to this part of the creation story. So God created mankind. God created us. Listen, in His own image. You were created to reflect and be the image of a holy, pure, healthy God. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. We all know what that means, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Wow, that feels empowering, doesn't it? Doesn't that feel empowering? That God created you in His image and He gave you the power to subdue the earth? Why do we all feel so unempowered? Next verse. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Next verse. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food to you. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was good, very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We are all born with three basic needs. And in that scripture we see, if you can go to the next slide, we see that God created this, oops, go ahead to the next slide. Okay, go back. Well, that's not showing me what I want. That's a keyhole. There should be more on there, but it's not. So I don't know what happened to the the slide, but that's okay. Here are the three basic needs. You can stay on that slide. The first one is this, and you can write these down because we're going to be talking about these for the next six weeks. The first basic need is safety. We all need to feel safe, born completely helpless, weren't we? I mean, there's nothing more helpless than a baby. And babies are born completely helpless. And yet at that moment of birth, we begin the trust building. We begin to trust. We depend on our parents to give us the protection and the safety, even though we may not. And psychologists and sociologists and and social workers tell us that when a child, a baby, even unable to cognitively process it when they don't get that security when they don't get that trust built early on it affects them their whole life why because inherently god created us to feel safe even as we grow older we want to know that we are safe safety 
is a huge need. And in the garden there, Adam and Eve were safe. God protected them. God provided for them. God made them feel that everything's okay. They trusted Him. The second basic need that we're created is with is connection. The image of God is all about relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three are in such tight, close, connected relationship that they are one. We do not serve three gods. We serve one God who reveals Himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In that Trinitarian picture, we find this connection, this connectedness that they have. He created you and me with that image to be connected to Him and each other. We are born for relationship. We need affection. We need affirmation. We need the esteem from people around us. We want to feel valued and we want to feel accepted. And that never goes away in our life. It's a huge need. But then we're also born with the need for empowerment. We need to feel that we have some control over our life. God said, go, man and woman. Go, Adam and Eve, and subdue the land. I give everything to you. I give you a free will to go and subdue. We need to feel that we have some control. God gave us the will and the power to choose. So before the fall... God met every one of those needs for Adam and Eve. The perfect image of God is that these are God-shaped holes and needs in our life that only He can fill. After the fall, after Adam and Eve decided, oh, we'll put our trust in ourselves, we'll listen to the tempter, we will disobey God's law, as soon as sin entered the world, it messed all of it up. Those three needs were destroyed in our lives because God could only meet them. And now we're out there in the world looking to meet those needs on our own. Sin broke the relationship and the trust that we had with God. Instead of looking to God to meet our basic needs, we look to each other. We look to a drug or alcohol or a relationship or Uh, television or something else that makes us feel safe, that makes us feel connected, and that makes us feel empowered. And the truth is, none of those things meet the need like God can. Think of every child at birth. They're totally dependent on adults. Safety. But as they grow older, go back here now and look in the window of our toddler room. When they begin to not only just think of themselves, which they do a lot, a lot, but they also start to seek out connection, relationships. And as they get into their 10s and 11s, 12s, 13s, those relationships become more important. There's this huge desire to be connected. And then they get into their teenage years. If you've ever had teenagers, I've got three. The number one thing that they push the hardest on us is empowerment. They want to be empowered to make their own decisions. They want to be trusted to make the right decision. They want to have independence of mom and dad. It's not that they don't want to be connected, but they want to feel more empowered. You see these needs in our life and the developmental process of all of our lives, that we need safety, we need connectedness, and we need empowerment. But these are the God-shaped holes that only God can fill. No human relationship, no material item, no habit can ever bring you safety and connection and empowerment we must have. Because our relationship with God has been broken, we still have the need, so we look elsewhere to fill it. So God did not design us the way that we are. Sin leads to shame. Shame makes us want to hide. 
I can't tell you how much I wanted to crawl under my desk that day and hide. I felt intense shame, intense, uh, there's something wrong with you, Tony. There's something wrong with you, Mr. Baker. Shame makes us want to hide. Genesis chapter 3, 6 and 11. God created us and now the fall. When the woman saw the fruit and the tree, see, I knew it was the woman's fault. That was a joke. It's not the woman's fault, trust me. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Next verse. Then the eyes, now listen, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The first step of hiding. Next verse. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord. They hid among the trees of the garden. Next verse. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? Do you think God, do you think God really lost Adam? That's a question I ask myself. Here, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. I was naked and afraid. I was naked. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He was shamed. And he said, who told you you were naked? I didn't create you that way. I didn't create you to be that way. I didn't create you to have shame. I didn't create you to have shame in your life. I didn't create you to feel like something was wrong with you. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit? Guilty. That I commanded you to not eat. Guilt says I did something wrong. Shame says there's something wrong with me. And there's something wrong with us. It's called original sin. Original sin. Original sin is the result of the first sin, a severing of the relationship between God and people, leaving in all of us this desire to be independent of God. It's a bent away from God. Original sin is that thing in you that is not even a thing. It's an attitude. It's a way of life. It's a thought process. It's your heart that says, I don't want God messing up my life. I don't want God messing around in my life. I can get along without Him. The problem is we can't. Original sin, the result of, is spiritual death. We lost our likeness of God. Therefore, something's wrong with us. Shame shows itself, though, in a few ways. Hopefully this slide works. Next slide. There it is. I don't know why it's black. It's supposed to be on like a white uh, background. And maybe that's why it isn't showing up correctly. Is there a way for you to change the background of that to white? Pause. Technical difficulty. So shame shows itself in a couple ways. For no. Did you all get a bulletin when you came in? Did you have a little slip in there, paper, half sheet of paper? That's the image that I'm trying to show you. Well, there should be more words there. So you can't Okay. We'll get that fixed next week for you. Safety, core, basic need. When I don't have safety, here's the shame that I feel. I feel abandoned. Abandoned. 
somebody didn't take care of me. Somebody didn't love me. Somebody didn't cherish me. Somebody wasn't looking out for me. Somebody's not for me. They're against me. So when I need safety, sin enters into the world. When I try to find safety in people and other things, I will experience abandonment. And that's the shame. When I need to be connected, uh, you can just go back to the screen. When I need to feel connected and I don't have a connection, what shame do I feel when I'm not connected? I feel rejected. I feel rejection. When I don't have connection in my life, I feel rejection. When I need empowerment, we feel humiliation as shame. That was my issue that day in that classroom. My empowerment was stripped from me. The choice that I had, I made a bad choice, but He humiliated me in front of all my peers. And so I felt humiliation. Just like Adam and Eve, we try to cover up the sin in our life. We try to cover up our shame. They used leaves. We use defense mechanisms. Probably don't have the next slide either, do you? Nope. All right, we'll get that fixed. Everybody got your sheet? How do we defend, how do we cover up the shame? When I feel abandonment, when I feel rejection, when I feel humiliation, here's how I try to cover up the defense mechanisms. When I feel abandonment, I become self-absorbed. If no one's going to look out for me, hear the thought process, then I'll just look out for myself. Abandonment leaves us feeling inadequate. We're driven by fear that we're not enough. And so if I'm not enough, I don't need other people. If I'm not smart enough, or I'm not lovable enough, or I'm not good-looking enough, or I become self-absorbed. I begin to live life on my own without the need of anyone else. I become isolated, and loneliness comes into my heart and life. Our defense is to ignore those around us. Our defense is to disconnect from the relationships in our life that we need. My life and the challenges in my life are more important than others. This is a sinful behavior because God is love and He wants us to be love. So when I feel unsafe, I feel abandoned, I create this self absorption in my life i become in and it can go all the way to narcissism where life is just about me i don't even feel anything for anyone else when i feel when i need connection and i feel rejection then i defend with self-gratification people may reject me you might reject me But food never will. Drugs won't. Drugs love me. I can control them. I can use them when I want. You see where I'm going there? We begin to self-gratify when we feel rejection in our life. All stemmed from the lack of connection. They now have done studies that people who are in healthy, connected relationships overcome addiction so much quicker in their life because of this need to connect. And so when we don't feel connection with God or others, we begin to connect with the things in our life around us, in our culture and environment. You know, the TV never rejects me, right? Unless it goes down in the rain. But, you know, then I turn to the internet or something else. But here's what I'm saying. This is an addictive side of behavior and it all stems from a need to be connected when i don't feel connection i feel rejection and if i feel rejected well 
screw you. I'll just take care of my life on my own. I don't need you. We protect ourselves from rejection by making new friends who are simply silent companions. They offer us connection without demand. It's a cheap substitute, and it's good for a moment, but addiction soon follows, and then we're hooked, and it takes us down roads that we never find the connection that we long for. And then, when we feel humiliation in our life, we then defend with perfectionism and control. Feeling powerless can be humiliating. There in that classroom that day, I felt powerless. I had no control over the situation, and I was humiliated. And so what you do, if you take, can control the outcome, if I can perfect my world, if I can perfect my, my, my calendar and my, my habits and all of that, if I can just perfect it and control it, then no one will ever be allowed to humiliate me again. This is my corner in life. This is the struggle for me in my life. Control. I want to control things because when I'm out of control, I feel humiliated. But here's the funny thing about that. Control freaks are the ones the most out of control. Trying to get control, the more we try to control, the more out of control we are. All this... And all these defense mechanisms, self-absorption, self-gratification, control, all of them lead to more brokenness. Families, broken. Personal lives, broken. Relationships, broken. There is no love and there is no satisfaction in life because we're trying to meet the needs on our own. We're not turning to a God who has met every need that we have. Jesus doesn't only forgive our sin. The Bible teaches us that Jesus also removes our shame. Look at Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Those old patterns of shame and humiliation and rejection and abandonment, you no longer need to keep trying to self-gratify, self-absorb, and control everything. But you can turn to God. In Christ, you are a new creation. Meaning, the basic needs of safety, connection, and empowerment can be found in Him. We're new in Him. Listen, Jesus nailed it all in His body to the cross. All of it. All the shame. All the humiliation. All the rejection. All of the abandoned. Listen, Jesus was abandoned. They all left him. The shame of abandonment due to the sin of the world was put in his body. Jesus was abandoned. Did he self gratify? Did he self absorb? No. This is the difference between you and me and Jesus. When Jesus was out of was thrown into harm's way and things weren't safe and he was abandoned, he did not self-gratify. Instead, he thought of you and me. This is the difference between Jesus. and he, is, he didn't enter into sinful behavior and patterns. Instead, he rose above sin, overcame sin. And instead, when Jesus was abandoned and they all left him, the shame of abandonment, he loved you perfectly. He loved me perfectly. He made it safe again for us to be in relationship 
with God. Instead of defense mechanisms, he loved. Jesus on the cross was rejected. They all gave up on him. They rejected him. They ran from him. The shame of rejection due to the sin of the world was put into his body. Yet instead of self-gratification, he loved us perfectly. Instead of calling the angels and only taking care of himself, he thought of you and he thought of me. In his rejection, he embraced us. He connected with us. He created a connection once again between us and our Heavenly Father. Instead of a defense mechanism, on the cross, Jesus loved. And oh yeah, He was humiliated. He was stripped completely naked, hung on a criminal's cross for the world to see, You could say they took him and stripped him of his power. Did they? God, pure power. Jesus, who spoke, let there be light. All powerful. To create universes. Yet he was humiliated because of the shame of humiliation. Yet it, he was not on the cross grabbing for control or trying to control the situation. Instead, he was empowering you and me to overcome. He was giving us power over sin. <laughs> Think about it. That scene on the cross, Jesus seemed to be completely out of control and yet he was in the most control of anyone. Jesus carried all our sin, all our shame to the cross. When he died, it died with him. Sin brings shame and shame brings sinful behavior. Jesus brings love and freedom to be who we are intended to be. As long as you continue with the defense mechanisms, as long as you continue to hold on to your abandonment and your rejection and your defense mechanisms that you have, your humiliation in life, you will continue to create selfish defense mechanisms Jesus brings love and freedom from all that. In Jesus, you're a new creation. What's your sensitive corner here? Have you thought about it? Abandonment's about safety. Rejection is what we feel when we don't have connection. Humiliation is something we have when we don't feel empowered in life. Can you identify the unmet needs and hurts and shame that you feel. Now, this is critical. You're thinking, boy, pastor, this sure seems all psycho stuff and whatever, blah, 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 blah. No, this is simply the effects of sin. And to be saved is more than just a ticket to heaven and a get-out-of-hell-free card. The gospel of Jesus Christ wants to heal you and make you whole. A constant renewing of your image of the image of God that he created you to be and as long as we don't as long as we hold on to the rejection and the abandonment and the humiliation in life as long as we continue to self-gratify you know self-absorb as long as we try to control everything we will not be fully what God's created us to be a reflection of the image of who He is here and now. Can you identify the hot spot, the corner that you live in? i got to be honest with you. When I read the book um, and I started going through this, I thought, man, I am really messed up. I think I'm all three of them. 
Um, and the truth is, you're going to feel like you're there at times. And part of the getting healthy and, and, and getting to where God wants you to be is recognizing where these pop up in your life. And here's the thing. Submitting them to Christ. It's all about submission. There's a surrendering that happens. A faith, a trust in God. That the blood of Jesus Christ doesn't just forgive me of my sins, but it also heals me of the effects of sin. God wants to replace the sinful defense mechanisms with freedom and love in your life. Our worship team's going to come. And I, I want it to this moment. I know I went a little long this morning. We had some technical issues, but I don't want you to leave without doing something this morning for the, in this very important moment of this message. Don't leave without processing this and thinking about this and praying about this. In your bulletins is a sheet of paper, and, and we pulled it out earlier. I want you to fill it out. If you're a husband and wife and you only got one, put them next to each other. I'm not going to ask you to show these to anyone else but you and yourself. And the truth is, you say, well, I don't want my wife to know where I'm at. She already does, man. Come on. She already knows what you're struggling with, right? Um, write it down. And at the end of this song, pray about this and listen to this song. At the end of this song, I'm going to ask you to do something with those. Okay, you're going to keep them. Put them in your Bible. Bring them back every week. Uh, we're going to talk next week. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about a gift God gives us to help us recognize these things. And the gift is anger. I know. Crazy, right? God gave gift as an anger. Yeah, anger, ang- anger can be a gift. And here's how. If you use anger wisely, it gives you an indication of where you're at. Where you're, where you're trying to overcompensate in your life and not trusting God. So as they sing, write, process. If you want to come forward, you can. If you want to come to the altar, you can. It's open. It's time of worship. But let's stand. If you want to sit after you write, stand, sit. You know what? I want you writing. Sit down. I know I'm confusing them. You guys ready? All right, let's do it.